everyone. Welcome to Making Room on the Pew, a podcast for the church misfits and outcasts. This is a podcast for the church misfits and outcasts, the people the gatekeepers of the faith love to keep out. Here we talk about building a fully inclusive church with the people who are actually out there in the world doing the work. Join us to learn more about experiences and perspectives different from your own while we create the church we are all longing for. Okay, friends, we are back, and I am so excited for the upcoming episodes. We have some really amazing content in the next couple of weeks for you, um, and I can't wait for you to hear it. Today, we are starting with one of my personal favorites, which may be a tad biased, because it is Reverend Sarah Welch Pomerantz, who also just so happens to be my wife. Uh, Sarah is the full-time pastor of the Community Church of Cedar Grove, where we live here in northern New Jersey, and she's actually doing some really amazing groundbreaking work over there. She won't admit it, but she is. She is actually the first pastor under 40 at that church, and she is also the first queer pastor at that church. Um, So she is really leading them into uh, quote unquote, the next phase of their life, um, in the church. So today we are going to talk about being a queer woman pastor, about Sarah's ordination story, um, which is riddled with obstacles that she overcame, uh, one by one. And just in general, hearing God's yes over the world's no, which I think is a really amazing uh, mission statement, if you will, uh, of Sarah's life. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Reverend Sarah Welch-Pomerantz. Hi. Okay, guys. Today we have a very special guest on the podcast, Reverend Sarah Welch-Pomerantz, who also just so happens to be my wife. Thanks for being Absolutely. here. Okay, so I gave a little professional bio um, about you at the top of the show, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about you, just in your own words, who is Reverend Sarah Welch Pomerantz? Oh, wow, a few words. Uh, I am a passionate leader who is dedicated to loving God and loving neighbor and uh, serving the least of these and helping others to serve the least of these. I'm a dedicated and committed wife and spouse, uh, a diehard Giants fan. So I might not be a surprise to anyone who knows me very well. And um, I am a, a passionate and uh, strong supporter of the, uh, of the underdog. Okay, so you talk a lot about loving God and loving neighbor. What does that mean to you? Just that real simple, like I know you have it on your website and you talk about it all the time in church, love God, love your neighbor. Um, I feel like a lot of your theology just kind of boils down into those two um, things. So what does that mean to you? I think it's just pretty simple. And if you had to boil down the gospel message right into that. It would be loving God uh, as much as God loves us and loving your neighbor the way God loves us. And if you're able to accomplish those two things, then the rest of it falls into place. 
Yeah, I like that. I I think a lot of times we really overthink um, theology and we overthink the gospel and we put a lot of um, a lot of things in place that don't necessarily need to be there. A lot of barriers um, for people. Okay, so I want to talk about how you were raised in an interfaith household. So for people who don't know, your mom is Catholic, your dad is Jewish, you are now a mainline Protestant minister. Um, There's a lot of interfaith, um, different sorts of theology, different faith practices in your family. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about growing up in an interfaith household and then how that sort of shaped your theology or your faith, um, or if it did at all. Sure. Uh, Growing up in an interfaith household sort of gave me more avenues towards God instead of just one path because one parent or both parents believed in something. I got to experience the faith of the Hebrew Bible and the faith of the Christian gospel at the same time and sort of see how God speaks differently to different people, but it's still the same God speaking to all of us. Um, In terms of it, you know, shaping any part of me, I think it makes me more likely to be supportive of obviously of interfaith dialogue, but also to of understanding where other people are coming from. You know, it gave me the opportunity, I think, to, to form my own theology. Uh, A lot of times if you grow up in the church, you end up sort of regurgitating or not thinking through your, your personal journey with God. Uh, Having the amount of exposure I had to Judaism and Catholicism and now mainline Protestantism, that journey kind of helped me land where I landed. Yeah. um, I think that's really true. Like, I mean, I grew up in, um, the United Methodist Church, but really more the evangelical um, side of that. And so a, a lot of that was just me saying back what I had heard from my, from my parents or from the church or from my pastor. And I don't think I ever, I didn't really start thinking about my own faith and my own theology until mm-hmm. my 20s. Um, so I think that's really cool that for you growing up in that interfaith household really gave you permission to do that. Um, is there maybe a couple of things that you took from Judaism or from Catholicism that you have carried, um, into your present day theology or present day, um, faith practices? I think it's an appreciation for service. Uh, One of my most powerful memories as a child is hearing the stories of Archbishop Oscar Romero and uh, learning about faith leaders who truly um, went and lived with the poor and served with the poor. Um, My parish priests, when I was growing up, all they did was serve the poor. Even though we lived in a wealthy part of Northern Virginia, you would never know that those priests experienced any wealth because they truly embraced what it means to live the gospel and to live by the gospel. So in my current uh, faith tradition and the way I practice my own ministry, this loving and serving the poor and the least of these is something that I brought with me from Catholicism. I mean, there's parts that I wish I could integrate more. Um, Certainly I don't have a, you know, not a veneration for Mary, but definitely an appreciation for the mother of God. But, you know, she, uh, she always works her way in to whenever I'm talking about women in the Bible who are 
brave, who are bold, who follow God without questioning, knowing where it's going to go. Um, so I try to bring her in, even though, you know, I've come farther away from, you know, praying to her now and in the hour of our death, which is, you know, the Hail Mary prayer that we say in the Catholic Church. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that. Um, I like that a lot. Um, so uh, moving forward into mm-hmm. um, our conversation here, I'm wondering, um, did being raised in the Catholic Church, because I know that you were mostly raised Catholic, right? Mm-hmm. You guys went yes. to Mass. You, you had that Judaism there as well, but mm-hmm. it was mostly, mostly in the Catholic Church. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I'm wondering now that, you, I mean, now on the other side of that, you are an ordained reverend. Um, mm-hmm. When you started to feel that call on your life um, into ministry, mm-hmm. did being raised in the Catholic church where women are not ordained um, cause you to uh, question your call at all or, or maybe even deny it? Um <laughs> Did that have any effect on you fully stepping into your call in ordained ministry? Oh, absolutely. I think growing up um, and not seeing examples of ordained women doing sacraments or leading worship or preaching or teaching definitely made me question what was going on. Um, I knew God was calling me towards ministry. I just had no framework of what that would look like because I was Catholic Um, I knew that I didn't want to be a nun and, you know, that's just not what I was called to do. Um, I've had various and positive women who are nuns. My godmother is a nun and I I see the beauty in Haitian, but not something that I was called to do. So in trying to find a, a way in which to do ministry, I knew that I was going to have to leave and I was really hesitant to do so because this is the church I grew up in and it would have made my mom upset. So I, I, I hesitated on it. And I think it, it probably led to me pushing my call back several years while I wrestled out with what that would look like. Okay. Yeah. I, I think that's really interesting. Um, as a gay woman called to ministry, Mm -hmm. What um, what was your relationship with the church? So we have already talked about how um, your faith um, has you have had very different um, steps of faith. So you had Catholicism and you had Judaism, um, and now you're into Protestant. Um, Protestantism. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm sure your faith has kind of changed with each of those steps as well. Um, But what was your relationship like with the church or maybe with God or even just faith in general um, before you came out and then after you came out or did it change at all? You know, it's interesting they asked that question because I often wondered to myself how I was able to sort of realize I was gay um, and still be in the Catholic church because even though I wasn't out and I didn't come out until I was in seminary, I always knew I was gay and I was inside of an institution that not only was not going to call me as a priest, but definitely did not honor my humanity as a queer woman. 
So I think when it came to the relationship I have with God, that never wavered. Um, even though my mom is a uh, really staunch Catholic in the sense that it's part of her cultural identity. Uh, she grew up Polish Catholic. Uh, I think your listeners who have Polish Catholic relatives or Irish Catholic can understand what I mean when I say that, where it's definitely a part of who they are and who they identify as. She never carried with her from the church this uh, ingrained homophobia. Um, in fact, my mom and dad, who probably knew I was gay well before I did, always taught me that God loves you no matter what. So I didn't have this feeling that God hated me for making me gay, but God definitely was challenging me in the institution I was in. And if I was going to fully realize a call, but also fully realize my own humanity, I was going to have to leave the Catholic Church. I think one of the hardest parts for the Catholic Church as a whole is, you know, you have lots of people who are women and queer people who are wonderfully and beautifully and awesomely made, but who have to leave because there's no space for them and there's no room for conversation. So as I started to really decide that I, you know, I couldn't deny who I am and I wanted to step out of the closet, I knew I was going to have to step out of Catholicism. And it, it made me sad because I feel that the Catholic Church needs us to stay there to push us. But I also knew that that was not the calling that God was giving me at the time. And, you know, I, I never heard sermons, at least from my priests that I can recall, where they talked about homosexuality being a sin, or uh, if you were gay, you were going to hell or anything like that, probably because it's not part of the rhetoric in any of the churches that I was at. I think most of the time Catholic priests were speaking more vaguely about theological concepts, at least the ones that I've encountered my whole life. I could be very wrong. I'm not sure. But it, it changed my relationship with the church because I knew I couldn't fully be who I was if I, if I didn't come out and didn't realize my call. Yeah. Um, I, I totally get that. You know, I think we've talked about this before, how I come from evangelicalism, you come from Catholicism, but there are a lot of parallels mm -hmm. in um, the homophobia, in the um, misogyny that we mm -hmm. saw. Um, one thing that I realized as I was coming out of evangelicalism is that there are still specific things that are really hard for me to do because of um, how they were laid out for me sure. my whole childhood. So like, um, quote unquote, quiet time. So for those of you who did not grow up in evangelicalism, or you <laughs> don't know what quiet time means, it is like, one of those things where you do nothing else, you put away everything, you turn off your phone, you turn off the TV, you do nothing but sit and read the Bible and probably journal because that's what I was taught. You always journal, you always write down your prayers to God so that you can look back and see how you grew. Now, that in mm. and of itself is not a bad thing. That's actually a really uh, great tool, I think. Um, to keep track of things that you're learning in your faith journey. But now on the other side of it, I cannot 
make myself go back and do that because I feel like it's um, still one of those things where like I have to do this and I have to do it exactly right and I have to Mm -hmm. check it off on my to-do list and if I do it every single day I'm a good Christian and if I don't I'm sliding I'm uh, I'm backsliding right in my faith um so I, I'm wondering are there certain things like that for you that now you're thinking through like okay so you know that may have been okay for me then or that may be okay for some people, but now it's really hard for you to come back and either think about certain things or do certain things like that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting as you were talking, I started to think about, you know, that's a, it's a very spiritual practice is so important, especially um, in your faith journey. And one of the things I used to do all the time was pray the rosary and, you know, with the rosary, it's a tactile bead that you pray the, you play, you pray the Hail Marys, sorry. You bring the Hail Marys and the Our Fathers, and you have to do it at a set amount of time. And growing up, I had, I, I can't tell you how many rosaries I had. I mean, I probably got one every time I stepped into different churches. You get them all the time. You wear them. My grandmother on my mother's side did the rosary every night um, while she listened to the radio. So it's part of that spiritual practice. And when I was a devout Catholic, I would do it. Um, but what I, I discovered, and, and probably a little bit like what you're saying, is that it became required. And when it became required, it lost its meaning to me. Because then it said, and then I felt like I was just saying the Our Fathers and not really understanding what Jesus is teaching us to pray in that prayer. Or I was saying the Hail Mary and then saying to myself, why am I asking Mary to pray for me now and in the hour of our death? Or talking about myself as a sinner to Mary when, if anything, Mary probably knows I'm a sinner and, you know, is praying for me regardless if we believe in, in Mary praying up in heaven. So I look at that very differently now. Um, it was a requirement. I mean, the thing about Catholicism is you have serious requirements as part of your faith. You have the sacraments that you have to participate in. You know, you are baptized. You have First Communion. You're confirmed. Theoretically, you should be getting married and having... Um, you know, confession. I, I think confession's another one. Um, just kind of like your your quiet time. Confession was something deeply personal uh, as part of my spiritual pac- practice as a Catholic. Um, and I found too that when I would go to the confessional booth and um, talk about my sins to the priest that was behind a, a door, it felt so cold. I think that's the best way for me to describe it because, you know, when you're talking about places that you have fallen short of in your life, you know, things that you've done, while there's a blessing to have anonymity because you don't feel like you're being judged, there's something to be said about having a conversation with your priest or your pastor or your rabbi, your aman saying, you know, this week I was really, you know, short tempered with my spouse. I yelled at my kids, help me, help me figure out what it is I'm doing that's causing this much stress. And when you're in the confessional, you kind of say all that and the priest absolves you of your sin, but never really gets to the issue at hand. And so when my mom and I would go to confession, because in the Catholic church, you have to go to confession before you can take communion. So you have to, your soul has to be clear Mm. before you go to the table. If I didn't take, if I didn't go to confession that week and then I went to the table, I always felt so guilty. But then I realized that, you know, 
I might go to confession and just say something just to, to get to communion, which is something I wanted without really doing it. And I was never getting the answers I was looking for. I was never getting to the root to the problem. It was just, you know, say this to, you know, the priest says your prayers, you go off, you do your penance, which might be four Hail Marys and 10 um, Our Fathers or five rosaries and you're fixed. And it, it sure works for a lot of people, but it definitely didn't work for me at a certain point because as I struggled through a lot that I had to struggle with in my life, confession became very empty because I wasn't walking out of there whole and complete. I was just walking out of there with chores before I could come to the table. So, you know, I look back on the rosary and I look back on confession and say to myself, wow, you know, those are two spiritual practices that should have brought me something because billions of Catholics around the world participate in that and find God in that. And I don't. And uh, I still mourn not having that. Um, I think there's something to be said about sitting down and, and having something to remind you to pray or setting time in your, your week or your month to go see your spiritual advisor to talk about places that you're struggling with, but not to the same extent as it did when I was a Catholic. Yeah, I I think it's really interesting that both my examples and both of your examples um, are really great spiritual practices, but turned into, for us, turned into requirements. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like... um, like you had to do these or you weren't a good Christian or you had to do these or you didn't have enough faith. You had to do this or you weren't okay with God anymore. Exactly. Um, Yeah. So I think that's, um, that's really interesting. And it really um, speaks to, I think why both you and I in our um, (laughs) faith journeys now are so like against any of those requirements, you know, right. Like, like we don't um, talk about like reading our Bibles every day. We don't talk about praying every day. We don't talk about, um, I mean, rarely do we even like give, like say grace before we eat to like some, maybe right. sometimes when we think about it um, <laughs> or like we've talked about doing devotionals, but um, it's that, that sense of requirement, which I think is really a shame. Like, that's so sad that we can't think about doing devotionals as a family um, without feeling like we're going to get caught back up in that uh, chase for, um, for doing all of the right things in order to be okay with God again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, think, I think to your point, you know, I hope that we, you know, you and I can eventually get through that so we can have that for our, our family. But, you know, when it becomes so much of do this and you're, if you don't do this and you're out, it's really damaging to the spiritual practice. So maybe with some, you know, Mm -hmm. good intent around it, we can, we can flip it around. Yeah. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Um, So I want to talk a little bit about your call story about, Um, how you got to where you are now. So you went to Rutgers, you graduated, Mm -hmm. you uh, went to grad school at Lehigh, right? And you were in like a master's PhD program for history, right? Yeah, it was, uh, I was in my master's and then you kind of, uh, I think the education was everyone would roll into the PhD part of it. 
Okay, so clearly you are on a really different path Mm -hmm. than being a pastor. You, Rutgers, majored in what, like poli sci or, right? I (laughs) I should know this. (laughs) It's okay. I forgive you, honey. Um, I have a a dual degree from Rutgers in history and political science, um, but I did minor in religion. So it's almost like it was peeking up at me while I was an undergrad. Okay, so you, so you, you had... Um, an interest in religion, Um, but then you were kind of going in this more academic Mm -hmm. uh, career path. What made you all of a sudden switch and go to seminary? I mean, I I know the story, but for, for everyone listening, what made you suddenly drop out of grad school and end up in Drew Theological? Well, I think I have, um, a relationship with God where God sort of has to like really snap in front of me, like snap, snap fingers to get my attention. Um, it was a, I'll never forget this as long as I live. Um, and I'm blessed that God called me in this dramatic fashion. It was Wednesday. Um, I had just come back from a Bible study that I was going to with a friend of mine at a very, very, very conservative church. Um, to this day, I think to myself, uh, why did you go in there? But, it is what it is. Um, and I was sitting on my couch. I had a ton of work to do uh, as a graduate student. It was not uncommon for me to be up really late at night. It was about 1.30, 2.30 in the morning. And all of a sudden, it hit me like a bolt of lightning. It felt as if God was, physic- was spiritually calling me by name. And I felt something inside of me that I had never felt before. Um, my Bible that, you know, I have a I had a study Bible from when I was at Rutgers that had all of my notes in there from my religion classes that I brought with me to Lehigh. Almost like, why would you bring this book? But clearly I had an intended purpose to. And I, I started flipping through and I came and I purposely, God got me right into first Samuel three, where, you know, Samuel is lying in the dark and he hears someone calling his name and it's God and says, here I am Lord. And I read that and I knew right then and there that God was calling me into ministry I cried because it was not what I thought. I think at the time I had just come out of a pretty dark place. And in my mind, you know, pastors, religious folk, they were perfect. They were beyond reproach. And, you know, certainly their backstory was perfect. So why would God ever call a sinner like me to do this? And, you know, clearly I had forgotten all of the parts of my Bible in which God calls, you know, some of the most, you know, random people with the worst backstories to to do wonderful things. And um, I knew right then and there that I uh, was called for ministry. And I spent that whole night, you know, I had my books ready to go to, to read and to write papers that I had to do. And I just was knee deep in my Bible and I could not put it down. And I read it almost as if I had never read it that way before. You know, I had examined this Bible forwards and backwards as an undergraduate, um, just looking at the historical references, looking at the the patterns and, and talking about the, like the, the, the things going on in there. I had never read it like that in, in terms of my own spiritual practice. And I heard God's voice telling me that I was going to be ordained. And I knew then that I was going to have to leave Lehigh, which I did the year later. And I also knew that I needed to find a church. And it was that search that started me towards the United Church of Christ. 
Um, I, thank God for Google. I think Google was in its infancy when I first needed it. And I typed in first, I looked for churches that affirmed, or at that time the word was accepted, uh, the LGBT. Now I wasn't out at the time, but my friend, John, who had been attending this conservative Bible study with me had had such a horrific experience at this church. Um, and because at the time I was, you know, part of the LGBT group, but as an ally, I knew that I could not go to a church that did not affirm not just women in ministry, but affirm the LGBT. Um, and also too, uh, I knew I was gay, but hadn't quite gotten there yet either. Um, and so I had in my, my Google search, I'm looking for a church and first was the Methodists and you know, there, <laughs> that was not going to be the path forward for me because while they would ordain me as a woman, they definitely wouldn't ordain me if I was gay and they wouldn't support gay uh, Christians in their church the way that I had hoped they would. And then I landed on the United Church of Christ and I saw their statement on what it means to be open and affirming, uh, what it means to be um, a, a God is still speaking church, which is a, a phrase that we use in the United Church of Christ talking about God still breathing life into our scriptures. And I knew that that was where I needed to be. It was just like, okay, so God pointed me away from the Methodist church. You know, honestly, I probably could have looked at the Episcopals, but I wasn't really drawn to high church in that way anymore since I had already had it with the Catholic church. And I knew I also needed a church in New Jersey because while I had been living in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, I knew I wasn't going to be here for the long haul. And I didn't want to start a relationship with a group of folks if I was going to leave. And so I looked for churches, UCC churches around where my parents live, which is in South Orange Maplewood. And the closest one that was open and affirming was First Congregational Church in Montclair, uh, New Jersey. And on a very cold Sunday, right after Christmas, my dad and I walked in there. And the first thing they did was hug me and embrace me like they had been waiting for me this entire time. They didn't know me at all. And uh, within the first three months, I ended up speaking to the pastor about sort of what had happened. And he said, OK, so you have a call to ministry. It's very evident. And uh, that whole next year, as I was still at Lehigh, um, he gave me the gift of practicing ministry with a safety net. Um, I was allowed to start Bible studies at some of our low, uh, a retirement community that First Congregational had a relationship with. I served in worship as a worship leader. I helped him Wednesdays during Lent to do a Teze uh, service. I preached. I helped serve communion. I was part of the worship team to figure it out. And in a way, I got to practice it before it became real. And having that experience really, truly helped me to see that church ministry was not just simply going to be me held up in my room with my books, reading and having this cloistered experience with God all by myself. But truly, it was about getting out and leading and serving people. And um, throughout that year, I got to discern kind of what kind of ministry I wanted to, wanted to do. And it became clear to me I wanted to do pastoral ministry where I would live with a group of people at a church and, and really get in to do the work. And I knew that I was home the moment I stepped foot inside of United Church of Christ Church. Hmm. Yeah, that that's uh, such a such a cool story. I love that story, um, which is why I asked you to, to talk <laughs> about it a little bit. Um, and you actually answered my next question, which was, how did you end up in the United Church of Christ? Um, so I, I'm glad that you mm -hmm. you did that for us, too. Um, and I, I love the 
part of that story where once you found the United Church of Christ, that they um, kind of affirmed your call for you. Like, Mm -hmm. I I know that, you know, it was a bolt of lightning and you knew that God was calling you to something, but I'm sure just having a a pastor or, um, you know, someone with some authority saying, yes, this is for you. I can tell that God is also calling you here. Um, I imagine that that was, that felt very affirming to you as well. Oh yeah, definitely. Because anytime that I had sort of raised an issue at, at my local church when I was Catholic about, you know, Hey, i I feel called to do more. It became, well, you would be a really great lay leader or you would work well with Sunday school and the kids. And then when I was attending this conservative, very ultra conservative church uh, with a friend of mine from high school who happened to be attending uh, Lehigh as well, that serving in any sort of capacity as a woman was never on the table unless I wanted to uh, make brownies for after church. And that was (laughs) never going to fit in for me anyway. So yeah, to have a a person in authority affirm that. And then at at First Congregational too, women were in leadership. Um, Eventually they, um, my pastor, who's been the senior pastor there for over 10 years now, she started as an intern uh, doing her supervised ministry there and, and rose up. And at the time I was there, our associate minister was a woman. Um, and so it was wonderful to watch these strong women in ministry roles giving me a, a template sort of of what that would look like for me when it was my, when it was my turn. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you, um, you got your call, mm-hmm. you quit graduate school, mm-hmm. you went to Drew Seminary mm-hmm. um, in Madison, New Jersey. You came back home uh, where you were raised or where your parents were. Um, mm-hmm. You went through seminary, you graduated. Yes. And so you graduated in what year? 2010. 2000, 2010. Okay. And then you got ordained in 2017. Yes. Um, that's a really long time in between, <laughs> in between like graduating and getting ordained. Sure. Um, I, I feel like tip, you know, whatever normal is, it normally doesn't take that long. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, time in your life, that journey from mm-hmm. graduation to ordination, um, what happened? Were there challenges along the way? Um, just tell us a little bit more about that time in your life. Sure. I think that when I graduated seminary, I wasn't quite ready um, to, to serve a church. Uh, I needed to have a little bit more uh, maturity and a little bit more skills under my belt. Um, as I look at it now from the opposite side, and then I look at pastors who come out of seminary without a lot of uh, experience possibly in the secular world or experience doing other jobs. There's a certain uh, naivete and a certain um, hardness in the way they examine things. Whereas having seven years um, to sort of be out in the world and, and having a career at uh, a really competitive place like Lifetime taught me that um, you can't always anticipate things and you have to be able to be flexible and you have to be able to deal with people and not be so rigid. And I think I needed that because in seminary, you're sort of in a safe space. You're in a safe place 
and you can think what you want and you can say what you want and people have to accept you and people don't tell you no. Um, the gift of having seven years out of the church was I got to learn how to deal with people telling me no over and over again and how I needed to convince them that I knew what I was doing. Um, I think the other service that I got having a, a business acumen that I have is that I learned how to uh, manage budgets and manage people. Uh, they definitely do not teach you how to be an administrator in seminary, at least not when I was there. So it gives you that added step. And I think for myself too, um, not only am I a young woman under 40, I also look very much like I'm under 40. I don't know if your listeners will ever get a picture of what I look mm -hmm. like, but I don't look the age that I am. And that is truly a detriment to my ministry because people wrongly assume that I don't have the experience or I don't have the uh, gumption or the ability to do hard things. And it is an unfair judgment on me. And that is something else that I experienced within that seven years is a lot of unfair judgment on me for being uh, young. I think I was held back a bit because I was young. I think people made a lot of wrong assumptions about me as a person and about my maturity level because of how I, um, what, what my face looks like, I, to be completely honest with you. And I think it took me longer because people also didn't realize that you can do ministry in, several, in locations that are outside of the church and outside of a chaplaincy role. Um, spending seven years at Lifetime, in addition to all of the business and all of the management and all of the administrative skills I got, I got a chance to practice ministry. I got a chance to really work with kids who needed, you know, mentorship and advising. I got a chance to learn how to uh, change with the times. I think one of the hardest things pastors now have to do is learn how to talk to millennials and talk to Generation Z. I had to do it every day because my staff was that young. Um, I had to figure out how to read people. And I think that the, those people who were with me on my journey through ordination that were in church hierarchy didn't understand that that skill is so important. And, that, and I see how it plays out now where pastors and conference ministers don't understand how to reach millennials and, and the generation below us. And it's really damaging the church. And having spent seven years being there has taught me what millennials are looking for, what Generation Z is looking for, how to speak that language, the technology pieces, and not come off as phony. I think that's the other piece is I see a lot of pastor colleagues of mine trying to adapt, especially if they're older, like in, in my parents' generation and, and above and Generation X, and it feels disingenuous. And I think spending seven years at Lifetime and learning um, about generations coming up behind me and not wrongly judging them um, has only benefited my ministry that I'm able to be more genuine and not phony and understanding how actually um, churches now. And, and I know you and I are going to talk about this in the podcast too, is there's only 10% of young women, women in general serving as solo senior pastors. And um, it's to the detriment of the church. And when I was at lifetime, lots of women were serving in management positions. I learned a lot from women who were my own age and younger for me that were in those positions. And it taught me a lot too. And then for those, I mentored a lot of young women to come up into those roles. And it gives that, that young kid that's coming into lifetime or coming into the church and sees a woman doing the leadership role. Like that's, that's what I want to be. And so 
I got to have that too at Lifetime. And I, it, it is a blessing in and of itself. Like Lifetime didn't come without its own issues, but uh, what I learned from them and what I gained is immeasurable. Um, and I would not change that part of my journey at all, even though there are still people in church hierarchy that pressed me on it constantly. I was pressed on it not too long ago at a, um, at a spiritual practice that I, or a spiritual group that I have once a month where, you know, it came up again. Why, why? And, and if they could have experienced that seven years with me, not only would this older generation of pastors say to themselves, okay, I want that too, but they would understand why it's so important and why they might make pastor. Not every young pastor goes through this, but a lot of the young pastors that I see now truly need that experience to go out there and to learn these other life skills and bring them into their ministry. It only makes you better. Right. Yeah. I, um, I, I think it's really interesting again, c- having come from, uh, evangelicalism into this mainline, uh, mainline Protestantism. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I constantly saw people who, um, who were called to ministry. I mean, like barely going to seminary, sometimes not going to seminary and literally just a pastor would be like, you are called to this. And clearly everyone knew that this person was called to ministry. They didn't go to seminary. They didn't have a huge thing that they had to do. They just were appointed the worship pastor or the uh, youth pastor or whatever it was. They didn't have a lot of requirements. So now being over here in mainline Protestantism to see all of the requirements that we require, that we require, of course, the Mm -hmm. requirements that we require our people to have um, is, is a little disorienting, you know? Um, So I I think that's um, really interesting that Mm -hmm. we consider ourselves very liberal um, yet we won't allow younger people to have these roles of leadership and in particular young women. Um, and you're right. I think that's such a disservice, um, to the church as a whole. Um, okay. So moving forward a little bit, um, from this question, I'm sure, I'm sure I know your answer and I'm sure everyone else listening knows your answer too. But um, I I just kind of want to talk a little bit about, um, do you think women still Mm -hmm. face more challenges than men and queer people more challenges than straight cisgendered people um, in gaining ordination, even within this particular denomination that we are in that is really considered very liberal, um, but there are definite um, hangups still with certain people having certain leadership positions. Oh yeah. I think my, my opinion on that is that even the most progressive of churches like the United Church of Christ, it is like a gut reflex that a search committee or a conference minister or something along those lines will automatically recommend a cisgendered white man for a role before a, a woman and a woman and then followed by a queer woman. So a cisgender, a cis straight gendered woman followed by a queer woman, followed by a woman of color, a woman of color who is queer. And if, you know, if your audience could see me, like my, my hand is going down on the list 
And then don't even get into the issue if you are gender non-binary or trans. Like you might maybe, maybe get one or two offers. And truly, like it is the biggest, biggest hang, one of the biggest hangups that, speaking of the United Church of Christ that we have, you know, we still struggle with language. Um, as progressive as the United Church of Christ is, we still use gendered language, mother, father, God, instead of using gender non-binary. And in a way, we don't honor our gender non-binary siblings who are in this church with us who are also called to ministry. Um, so yeah, I think uh, having been and going through the search process, and, and you know this very well, um, I do get calls, but it, a senior pastor role might come is going to come harder for me. And it will come harder for me, even though I am more qualified than most, if not, I would say 90% of the cisgendered white male uh, counterparts that I have. And that's not, um, you know, tooting my own horn. That's just a fact. And it is as much as I love the United Church of Christ. And I do, I, I really do think that it is doing the work. Um, and in New Jersey, I've seen a lot of it happening. We still struggle here. I, I've experienced it firsthand now that I'm ordained that I don't get treated the same way um, as I've seen my straight white male colleagues. And I think it's still this fear that now that women are entering it and, you know, not just straight women, but queer women and women of color and, you know, gender non-binary folks that, you know, it, it's like, oh, we still have to hold on to it. You know, mass, it, you know, people still want to see the man leading. And that's not true. You know, there are studies out there that kids need to see in the pulpit, women, women of color, queer women, and gender non-binary folks and trans people. And that's important. And the church really has to get it together. And search committees will always make that decision. It's like a knee-jerk one. And it is up to the United Church of Christ and, and essentially every governing body to help them to see that that's not the right move to make. Because you can make a very bad decision calling a person who you think is right just based off of their gender, their sexual identity, their gender presentation the color of their skin can really damage that. And, and I've seen it played out in the church I serve now. I've seen it played out in many churches. So I'm not quite sure what it's going to take for the United Church of Christ to do it. I, I still think that they need to make some radical changes in some of the conference positions. Um, right now, uh, the Central Atlantic Conference, which we're a part of, just voted in uh, a queer man of color, which I was so happy to see. Um, but I want to see that more. And I want to see younger folks taking the reign the church of christ make a commitment to gender non-binary language to honor all of those who are in there and you know we still have miles to go uh to, before that i can see that happening i think it'll happen in my lifetime i do but it, it's just going to take it's it's intentional work it's always being on top of it it's always saying okay you know you're, you're talking if you're a conference minister or your associate minister and you're talking and they have a a bad candidate who is a white cisgendered man who's not as good and they're thinking senior position he's got no experience but then right in front of them they've got a gender non-binary person who has done tremendous things who can speak the language and is open and affirming and they've got all this stuff if they make the bad choice and i'm not saying necessarily you know i'm saying this as a as a person who wants to see it happen <clears throat> Don't make the easy choice. Make the choice that is going to 
honor where your church is and, and go from there. And that's what I'm hoping to see the United Church of Christ do. Yeah, um, I, I agree. I think that it's so important to see different types of people um, mm -hmm. in the pulpit. I know, you know, we've talked about this before that um, when I first met you and you were like, oh, yeah, I'm a pastor. I, I kind of sat there and I was like, but you're a woman and you're gay. How are you a pastor? <laughs> like, I mean, I just had no idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think at that point, my um, grandparents who are Lutheran had a woman pastor. So I was like, still like kind of figuring out the whole woman pastor thing. Mm -hmm. But then with the fact that you are also gay, like it was blowing my mind. And it's, um, it's amazing to me that at, you know, in my 20s, I still had not seen um, a woman or any queer person in the pulpit before. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my extent was like my youth pastor was a woman um, when I was in mm -hmm. middle school. And that was it. And um, I, I think you're you're right. Kids, you know, the generation below us, they really need to see different types of people, not just the same straight, white, cisgendered male or or you know even just male at all or cisgendered at all you know it's um it's really sad to see a church who is based on diversity mm -hmm. and serving the other to still have the people who are in leadership positions be the majority like mm -hmm. that just, it seems so counterintuitive. Um, so I, I'm with you. I'm, um, I'm all for seeing um, some different types of people come up into leadership and into more of the um, like association leadership, like you were talking about too. Right. Um, okay. So as we are wrapping up here, um, this podcast is all <laughs> about the outcasts and the misfit, mm -hmm. um, the people who um, the gatekeepers of the faith love to keep out, the people who um, are the minority in whatever, um, whatever aspect mm -hmm. of their life, you know. Um, so I, I'm wondering, what is one population or maybe a couple um, mm -hmm. populations of people who you feel we really still have work to do within the church to make it radically welcoming for them? I think it's, and I was reflecting on this after you and I spoke about it, you know, in addition to all of those folks that, you know, all of those people that we just named, you know, gender non-binary, trans, young women, women of color, all of that. Um, it's also people who are poor and people who mm. are um, displaced and people who have mental illness. Uh, one of the things that my first pastor ever told me, um, and it has stuck with me to this very day, was that the reason that racism, homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, um, all of that hatred still exists is because if we were ever to get past it, right, if we were ever going to get to a point where that wasn't at the forefront, we would see that we have so failed the least of these. We really have. You know, one of the things that Jesus says to us is, you know, do unto others like you would do to me. And in our churches, especially mainline Protestants, we are not capable of having homeless and displaced folks in our church, like being there and, you know, not being clean, not 
being, you know, ha- having mental Ill- instability or addiction, we're not there yet. And it's a shame. It really is. And I think about in the own, my own ministry setting right now, you know, we had a, a gentleman show up who, um, who scared everybody. And he, he clearly had trauma that he was working through. He, he had uh, mental illness that he uh, disclosed loudly to the congregation. And our first instinct was to get insular and to ask, how do we protect ourselves? And, and yes, that's true. We want to make sure our sanctuaries are safe, you know, given the world that we live in where uh, churches are not safe, but we don't do a good enough job being there for the poor. We don't. We don't want to get our hands dirty. We don't want to embrace a person who has to live on the streets every day the way that we would embrace a friend. And, and truly, you know, as I preach today, um, Jesus as, you know, the reign of Christ Sunday, which is today that we recorded, and, you know, it's the last day before um, Advent, Jesus is not always in the pews with us. Jesus is in the tent cities. Jesus is um, on the streets sleeping in a box next to a homeless family. And we really have to examine how we are taking care of those people. You know, it's one thing to go serve at a soup kitchen, which I I completely am all for. But I wonder what it would be like for our churches if we truly opened the doors every day and let people who had no place to go sleep in our sanctuaries. You know, would we be frightened? Would we... Would the ugly parts of the things that we hold back, would we assume that they'd, you know, urinate and defecate in there and steal? Or can we honestly welcome in and show them compassion and show love and give and help them? You know, I think if you could think of a misfit and outcast, you know, think of the, the displaced woman or the displaced queer kid who can't go home or, you know, the gender non-binary person who has no place to go. And, and truly, that's the face of God. And we're failing them, quite frankly. And we have to really address that sooner rather than later. Yeah, I, I think you bring up a really good point about um, when asking um, who are the misfits? Who are the outcasts? Who mm-hmm. are the people that we claim we are serving? We claim we want to have part of our church families or part of our communities. Um, a lot of times are the people who make us feel afraid, like whatever, not necessarily mm-hmm. of them, although that may be true as well, but um, afraid because if we accept them in, we know that we're going to have to change. Oh, absolutely. You know, like I, I think we definitely um, set up our communities and our churches in a way that protects ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and to be honest, I'm not really sure how we're doing gospel centered work that way. Uh, I'm not sure that that really um, makes much sense that trying to protect ourselves, but also trying to be like Jesus um, I'm not sure how that fits together at all. So, yeah, um, me, mm-hmm. e- me either. Me yeah. Either. So, so I'm, yeah, no, I, I'm thankful that you, you brought that up. That's, um, a good point to think about. Um, all right. So, um, wondering before we sign off here, where mm-hmm. can our listeners find you if they want to, uh, connect with you on social media, uh, 
where can they go to find you, to talk to you, to connect with you? So I, I do have a, rev, a website. It's uh, reverendsarahpomerantz.com, all one word. Um, it's not up to date, but um, it's part of my project for the end of this year. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, which um, I get back to people really fast, my um, Twitter name is, uh, and I'll tell you that right now, is Reverend Sarah Welch Pomerantz, and I'm at Sarah Pomerantz. Uh, if you want to tweet me and, and talk to me about any of the things we talked about here, feel free to do that. Um, I am on Instagram and Facebook uh, with that same name. It'll be easy to find. And also email. Um, my personal email is Sarah dot pomerantz at gmail.com and you know one of the things i welcome is dialogue and conversation you know i don't um i don't think that my word is the only word i'm just telling my story and my experience and i love to hear other people's experiences and stories i think it only makes us better all right wonderful um well thank you so much for being on the podcast i know that our listeners are going to have um such a great time listening to what you had to say today so thank you all right thank you for having me Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Reverend Sarah Welch Pomerantz. She is brilliant, if I do say so myself. Like she said, you can find her on all of the social media channels, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Just search Sarah Welch Pomerantz and she'll pop up. You can also find her on her website at revsarahpomerantz.com. Okay, friends, one last thing here before I sign off. If this podcast is encouraging you or positively impacting you in any way, please take a few seconds to hit that subscribe button and leave a review. That really helps new listeners find this content. And if it is good for you, I hope it will be good for others who find us along the way. Of course, you can always connect with me as well on my website, baileyjoewelch.com and on Instagram and Twitter at baileyjoewelch. Now, once you get there, either to my website or my Instagram or Twitter page, you will notice that it does say Bailey Welch Pomerantz because I did just get married in November, but I am going to go ahead and leave the handles in the actual web address as Bailey Joe Welch so you guys can find me a little bit easier. All right, guys, I'll see you next week.